Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here with me in the studio, this show's producer and my friend, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey, Nate. How you doing? I'm glad that I'm your friend. Uh, I'm glad you're my friend, too. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Nate. I'm I'm all here. Sweet. Hey, hey wait, where, where, where are you headed this weekend, though? It's my daughter's birthday, so we're probably going to go up to our little Idaho spot. Nice. Yeah, spend some uh, spend some fam time up at the hot springs. It's always nice to get away and take a little bit of time off, be with the family. Oh, for sure. Well, and this week we're diving into one of my favorite sections of uh, all of Doctrine and Covenants, section 84. You, you, you know it's a good section when the Come Follow Me discussion only has one section that you're covering. Oh, yeah. It means there's a lot going on or that there's 300 um, verses in the section. Yes, yes, it does. And, and in this one, there's definitely a lot going on. Uh, this, this is going to get us into the oath and covenant of the priesthood. It's going to dive into Moses a little bit. And, and it almost even gets to, to, to your favorite part of all scripturedom, the, the begatting. Oh? Uh? It's, it's not quite begatting, but it's close. So Wait, how close? I mean, Does it use the word beget? No. no. Well, then whatever, man. <laughs> but it does go through genealogies. All right, whatever. All right. And so if we're going to be talking about Moses, we're going to be talking about the priesthood, we're going to be talking about the line of authority, uh, we're going to talk about the oath and covenant of the priesthood, but because Moses plays such an integral part in this section, I, I feel like we need to take a, a little bit of a detour to talk about Moses. And, and it's interesting to me that Moses, uh, if you were to reference one thing that he is known for in, in Jewish history, it's that he is the lawgiver. Uh, you look at the, the Bible, you've got the, the, the law, Torah, the words, the Kadavim, and the prophets, the Navim. And, and Torah, the first five books is the law. That's what Moses is known for, is he is the one that goes into the mount, gets the commandments, that gives the people the law, that establishes Israel and establishes this this law among the people. But what I find so unique and interesting about this is his start when he, when, when he has that moment that pulls him away from his Egyptian heritage, his, his Egyptian family, uh, sends him out into the wilderness for 40 years where he goes and and you know, lives lives this this the shepherd life, if you will, and goes back to Israel to redeem them, to set them free. And the crux of that was because he slew an Egyptian, right? He was a killer. So so how how does a man who kills another man? And when we're talking about the commandments, and we went to the law and doctrine covenants forty, I believe it was forty two. They're talking about. God went to great lengths. I think he even repeated that commandment three times. Thou shalt not kill. Thou yep. shalt not kill. And yet here you have Moses who slays an Egyptian and he says, you, you're perfect. Come here. You're going to be the one that gives the law to the people. And by the way, thou shalt not kill. So so why why does Moses get a pass on slaying? And, and, and why is the lawgiver 
a person who's who's got this past or history of maybe not being quite so lawful? Here's a question. Yeah. Just so that I can remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dude that he killed was an Egyptian like slave driver, right? And that was like beaten up on somebody, or is that just is yeah. that just Charlton Heston? No, no, I'm I'm pretty sure you're right. You you've got this this Egyptian overlord that's smiting a Hebrew, and and Moses sees this happening, kind of infuriated, and and he smites the the Egyptian. Did he kill him on purpose? Or was it accidental? Did he mean to like? Did he mean to punch him or whack him or whatever? And then he accidentally killed him, or did he set out with like, "I'm going to kill this dude"? I don't think he set out to kill this dude. I think he acted in anger in the moment. He he kind of he saw injustice and he acted. Do you think? Do you think that he even even in anger wanted to end the life of this other dude? It's a good question. Because I just feel like that's probably still important in context of thou shalt not kill. Yeah. Okay, that's all. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, and I think I think in today's society, uh, we're a little bit removed from, from what it was like in, in yesterday's society, if you will. In, in yesterday's society, if we're talking about Moses' time, if you're talking about the law of Moses— who who was the one responsible for carrying out judgment? Who was the one that executed that judgment? Because in today's society, I, I mean, we had the firing squad where where maybe a couple people had live rounds and, and most people had blanks, so you you weren't sure who did it, right? And and you didn't want to carry that guilt or that burden, which is very different from in the Old Testament times. We talked about this with uh, if you killed somebody on accident and you had to flee to the city of refuge. It was the next of kin. It was their responsibility to carry out judgment. It's not that you had to go to court and you had to to get the sentencing passed and then you got permission to go slay the person. It was your responsibility to act in that moment, to chase this guy down and, and kill him if he was guilty and and it was the people that had the burden of executing someone. Hmm. And, and you talk about stoning someone to death. It's not it's not that one or two people had a stone and everyone else was throwing styrofoam blocks that <laughs> may or may not hurt someone. Right? Yeah. Everybody had a live round. Everybody could have been the one that that killed them. Okay. And 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 I think there was a a responsibility or a burden there that we've kind of shifted off of ourselves. If you're going to execute somebody, you are the one that's going to be looking at them when you do it. And and maybe that makes you all the more careful to know that you are doing the right thing, that you're not just killing an innocent person. That is actually kind of interesting. That is interesting. The idea that like you, if, if you, if you can shift that burden on someone else, it makes it a lot easier for you to be like, Oh yeah, kill him. Because mm-hmm. you don't have to, you don't have to um, own any of it. You don't have to, uh, you know what I mean. You don't have to, ca- like you said, you don't have to carry any of the weight of that. That is kind of an, a really interesting, an interesting, uh, I don't know, thought thought exercise. 
Yeah, and and I think it's relevant. I think it's important that we do this. And I think, I I mean, honestly, I guess that's why we're starting with this topic, this conversation, talking about Moses as the lawgiver, and having to own that decision, and and knowing that maybe he was legally authorized to do what he was doing because he was executing somebody who was guilty of of killing. And what's the punishment for killing? If if this Egyptian is killing a Hebrew and he is breaking the law, then the sentence is death for himself. And so he should be executed. And and who's the one that should execute him? Is it not the next of kin? If if he if Moses is another Hebrew, he he's got the responsibility over any other Egyptian to carry out that punishment. And maybe he's a little bit justified in doing what he's doing. And and the reason I bring that up is because I want to take this to Nephi. Nephi slays Laban, and I think this is an issue that some people have when they read the Book of Mormon, is is God commanding him to kill Laban? I know for sure of people that have told me in conversation they have an issue with this. And there's a law in, in Israelite history, and it's not just Israelite history. This is Babylon this is the, the the Canaanites next to them. This is pretty universal for the entire Near Eastern region. That if you falsely accuse somebody of a crime and, and they find out that it was false, the accusations, then the punishment is whatever punishment you sought for the innocent person. Really? Uh-huh. So go back to the case of Nephi when... When um, Laban says, you are a robber and a thief and I will slay you, he's accusing him not just of, not just of trying to steal, but robbery, this, this idea of armed robbery, that here he comes trying to, with, with a weapon, extort uh, Laban into getting the plates. It's a false accusation. And he tries to kill him and, and his brothers. And the, yes, because armed robbery, the punishment is death. So he is asking his servants. Who are his servants? Laban is a captain of 50. He's not asking just normal people to go arrest him. He's asking, if you will, the police force of Jerusalem at the time to execute Nephi and his family for armed robbery. So it's a false accusation that carries the death penalty. From a position of power, too. From a position of power. So according to Israelite law, according to the Babylonian law, Laban has committed a sin in accusing someone. He has broken the law by falsely accusing someone of being an armed robber, and the punishment that he sought was death. Therefore, the punishment that Laban deserved according to the law, was a death sentence. Interesting. And who was the one that's supposed to carry that out? It's the one that was offended. Nephi had the legal burden of executing Laban from, from a legal standpoint. Hmm. And, and now he's going to... And it's interesting because the story of Laban excuse me, the story of Nephi and the story of Moses parallel each other. And you'll see Nephi bringing up Moses as he's talking to his brothers because Moses is going to take his people and he's going to cross the sea and establish a new nation in a promised land. 
And what's Nephi doing? He's following the same path, and the path starts with murder. For whatever reason, the path starts with murder, but it starts with justified murder. Yeah, not murder, but a justified killing. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm just saying. If we're, I'm saying in theory, it's not murder if it's if it's a justified killing. Right? Right. Interesting. And and it's interesting because because he's he's in essence being the Moses for this new people. He's going to be. This is the moment that kind of crystallizes him as as their leader, as their Moses, if you will, as he's going to take them across the sea. And it just as just as Moses crossed the sea, and he's going to establish them in the promised land. And there's a lot of parallels and similarities. And we kind of get hung up looking at Nephi killing Laban, but what we miss is there are parallels to the story of Moses that it's it's fascinating how the scriptures do this and the symbolism and how much they parallel each other. I just find it cool. It's awesome. That's fantastic insight. So Moses is going to be not just the lawgiver, but we're going to talk a little bit about priesthood here. And so let's uh, let's go into Doctrine and Covenants 84. Uh, we're going to talk about the importance of a, a temple being built. Uh, the Lord says, uh, well, Joseph Smith says that the reason why the Lord has gathered any people in any dispensation was always for them to get together to build a temple. Uh, but in order for them to build a temple, there there's going to need to be a priesthood to be able to worship, to be able to sacrifice, to to be able to carry on these ordinances. So that's kind of the context of of this revelation as we're getting there. And and by the way, if we look at the Israelites, the the Levites are the ones with the priesthood, right? The sons of Moses, the sons of Aaron. And so this is, and, and this is the reason why I started with Moses and this and this killing is that the parallel paths, if you will is because I think another issue that people might take as they're reading the Book of Mormon and looking at this is Lehi does not descend from Moses or Aaron. And Moses and Aaron descend from Levi. Lehi is not a Levite. He descends from Manasseh. So if he descends from Manasseh, how do they have priesthood in the Book of Mormon? You've got this line of people, and and yet you have all this talk about sacrifice. You have this talk about the rites, the rituals, the priests, and, and all of this priesthood throughout the Book of Mormon. Where does it come from if you have no Levites, if you have no priesthood? And I think that's kind of a, a weird point or, or a difficult point for some people. So that's why I like Doctrine and Covenants section 84 so much, because it helps us understand this priesthood and where it comes from. Um, let's let's go to verse 5. For verily, this generation shall not pass away until a house shall be built unto the Lord, and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. And the sons of Moses, according to the holy priesthood, which he received under the hand of his father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro received it under the hand of Caleb. Caleb received it under the hands of Elihu, Elihu under the hand of Jeremy, Jeremy under the hand of Gad, Gad under the hand of Esaias, Esaias received it under the hand of God. Esaias also lived in the days of Abraham and was blessed of him, which Abraham received the priesthood from Melchizedek, 
who received it through his lineage of his fathers, even till Noah, and then from Noah till Enoch, to the lineage of his, his fathers, then from Enoch to Abel, who was slain by the conspiracy of his brother, who received the priesthood by the commandment of God, by the hand of his father, Adam, who was the first man. Which priesthood continueth in the church of God to all generations. So this is the priesthood that Moses had. This is different from the priesthood that Aaron had. Because it says here in the next verse, let's see. And the Lord confirmed a priesthood also upon Aaron and his seed through all their generations, which priesthood also continueth and abideth forever. So the priesthood of Aaron, Levitical priesthood, Aaronic priesthood, is different from the priesthood that Moses had. Hmm. And, and notice... I mean, we, we look at this line, we, we know the Old Testament is the family history of Jesus Christ, from Adam all the way down through the king list in Judah to, to, to where you get down to, in the New Testament, it picks it up and gives this lineage all the way down to, to Joseph and Mary, and then you have Christ. So the, the, the Old Testament is this family history of Christ, but look at this priesthood line a little bit closer. Moses receives it from Jethro. Who is Jethro? Jethro Tull? Not Jethro, not Jethro Tull. Dude that plays the flute? Not, flautist? Not, not the flautist. All right. Oh, well, then who is he? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, he, he's, got, he's got several different names. Jethro might not even be his name. It might be a title because the Hebrew Jethro means he that that has an abundance or the excess, the surplus or uh, superior, uh, wealthy, or he who's doing well, his excellence, right? So it's kind of a title. He was a priest of Midian, but if you look at it, he receives it from Caleb, Caleb from Elihu, Elihu from Jeremy, Jeremy from Gad, Gad from Esaias, and then Esaias received it under the hand of God. This does not tie into Abraham's family. Esaias hmm. lived in the days of Abraham, but Abraham's not the one that gave the priesthood to Esaias. This is a whole different line. And, and so something that's interesting is this, back in the day, you had the patriarchal order where the patriarch had the priesthood and ruled over his family and gave it to his son and to his son. And, and you had almost these silos of of priesthood authority, not this universal church that acted under the direction of God with, with the presiding high priest. You had a presiding patriarch, and these different families had these different priesthoods, and the priesthood that Moses got, interesting enough, did not come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, hmm. and, and down the line to him. It was from a different family outside of Israel. When did he get that? When did he get that priesthood conferred? Uh, good question. Uh, Jethro's the one that gave it to him. I'm, I can't remember if it was in the forty years while he was living there uh, before he went back and pulled the people out, or or if it was after he'd pulled the people out and revisited his father-in-law. I want to say it was in that forty-year period when he was residing with the the priest of Midian. Okay, interesting. But he's pulling it from a line outside of Israel. So, so this idea of the Israelites and, and a lot of people looking at this and saying, whoa, 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 where's this Aaronic priesthood coming from? They're not, they're not from the family there. 
way before the priesthood was given to Aaron, the lesser priesthood, mind you, there was a greater priesthood that existed that that was had from different families all over the place. So for the Lehi to be this new family line that receives the priesthood from however it is, whether it's like uh, Isaiah is here who receives it under the hand of God, or whether Lehi received it under the hand of another prophet that had Melchizedek priesthood, this is not Aaronic priesthood. When the priesthood shows up in the Book of Mormon, these ordinances, these, these, these priesthood that we're talking about, it's a higher priesthood. It's the Melchizedek priesthood. They're not Aaron's descendants. They're not Levites. They're not officiating in a traditional sense. But this is not something new. Look at here, the story in the Old Testament. This is something that you see with these different families that had the priesthood and preserved it from generation to generation, and, and it carries on over into the Book of Mormon. It's amazing, and and that's why when I was um when I was studying the Canaanite history and, and ancient Near Eastern studies, I, I'd read about all of these Canaanite gods, and there was a common theme among all of them. These gods would dwell in a tent, and and the word for tent was ohel in Hebrew, which also was a word that they used for temple. And, and the idea was God had a permanent residence or a, a, a temple that he lived in in heaven, his, his heavenly temple. And when he would visit here on earth, he, he would be more of like a camping trip. He would be a temporary visitor. He would be living in a, a tent, a, a temporary abode while he was here on earth. But, but there's also reason to believe that way back when with these nomadic people, you had a lot of tent dwellers. And if they dwelt in tents, then their God also dwelt in tents. So this idea that in the ancient world, God dwelt in a tent, not just in a tent, but a tent at the base of a mountain next to a river of water. And this idea that the river of water flowed out from, from him to feed the whole earth, that he was the source of living waters to the whole earth. And it was unique to, or not unique. It was interesting to me to see this pattern over and over again with these with these different Canaanite gods, and and this the structure. But then you look at Lehi when his family leaves Jerusalem. All of a sudden, it follows the same architecture, the same type. They're they're traveling by the borders, which are near the the borders of the Red Sea, and and that's a weird thing to say. The borders, which are near the borders, how are borders near borders? Well, well in Hebrew. Borders is also the same word to say mountains. So if you were translated as mountains rather than borders, they traveled in the mountains which were near the Red Sea, mm. which were near the borders of the Red Sea, the mountains that were bordering the Red Sea. And as they came out of these mountains into a valley, there was a river of water that flowed into, and, and Lehi makes this big point about this river of water being the fountain of all righteousness. And then Nephi makes this big point that his dad was dwelling in a tent in this valley next to this river. And what's Lehi doing here? He's officiating. He's offering sacrifices. He's acting in a priest role, representing this the, God. The priest represents God, but it also represents the people. And and the symbology of this this ancient world just meeting in this crux of Lehi taking on this position of a father of a new generation, and and telling God's story again as it flows into the Book of Mormon. To me, it's just fascinating to see how it merges so interestingly into the into that old world it would definitely be hard to uh make that a 
like the the just the depths of the parallels. I'm just going to throw that out there. It, 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 you're absolutely right. And, and you've got these chiasmic structures that are talking about the river of water and the valley. And, and at the center of this chiasmus, this altar that stands and, and this idea of sacrifice and this, uh, yeah, it's... I'm it, just going to say the more, the, more, the, more that the more that we continue to just learn about the Book of Mormon, the more I'm continually convinced that you don't have a young dude making this up. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't mean to derail you, but I'm just You're saying... You're not derailing thing, I'm me. I'm just saying it's... things like this, things like this, it's just like, that. It's that's a little too much to be, you know what I mean, coincidental and just pulled out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and, and that's one thing I gather out of this as I'm looking at this lineage, this, to, to me, it's so fascinating that you have this line unconnected on or excuse me unbroken from Adam down down to Christ and and in this lineage that's just perfect but yet when you're talking about the priesthood there's a rupture why isn't Jacob mentioned why isn't Isaac mentioned why why did it stop with Abraham now all of a sudden you have this jump to this family over here well this line is actually where Moses gets it from and then it brings it weaves it back into Israel but now it's not Melchizedek now they have the lesser priests now we have Aaron which is an unbroken line that goes on for a long long time so so I don't know it's it's interesting to see these hops but there's one other thing here that I find super amazing if you'll <laughs> if if, if you can hang with me a little bit longer, sorry. I, oh, I'm hanging in, man. I'm <laughs> I'm hanging in by the seat of my pants. <laughs> okay. Um, Abraham received the priesthood from Melchizedek, who received it through the lineage of his fathers, even till Noah. From Noah till Enoch, through the lineage of their fathers, from Enoch to Abel. This is where this is where there's something else that I don't know if you catch. Abel was not part of the line. Cain slew Abel before Abel could have kids. Well, maybe Abel had kids because uh, there are stories that, that that Cain married Abel's daughter. It's, I guess it's not really here nor there. But if Abel had kids, they're not mentioned in this line. It's Seth that Adam bears afterwards. And then Seth... Has, has a child, and, and from there you get the lineage to Noah, and from there you get the lineage to Abraham, through Seth, not through Abel. So why is the priesthood going to Abel and not through Seth? And in the Old Testament, if someone were to die and not have kids, it was the responsibility of the brother to to marry the wife of the person that died and raise up posterity for them right give give them kids so that their line can continue even though they they died and and it's interesting to me to see this I, Abel was the one that was blessed with the priesthood and he his line wasn't able to continue maybe he conferred the priesthood before he died but it's not likely because Adam says or the the, the Genesis says after Abel had died. His Adam and Eve were sad, and they went and, and knew each other and conceived another son in Seth, and then Seth conceived his son. So how could Abel pass on the priesthood to his grand or to to his nephew? It would be 
if if his younger brother wasn't even born yet by the time that he had died. But I think what's going on here is is Abel is being adopted into this line. This line is adopted rather unto Abel. It, this is posterity being brought up to him, even though he had died. That that sense of if you die, your brother has kids that 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 are raised up for you to keep your name going. Does that make sense? Yes. And. And I wish I would have hit this last week because we were talking, let's see, the last section, 83, talks about the importance of taking care of the widows and taking care of the fatherless. And and God cares about them. And so much so that there's a standing law in the Old Testament that the firstborn son receives a double inheritance. And the reason why they receive a double inheritance is so that they can take care of any unwed sisters or, or anyone that, that needs to be taken care of that doesn't have a, a person that they can claim and hold on to that's going to provide that. So they receive twice as much as everybody else. So you look at this, it's as if Abel is receiving Seth's inheritance as well as it runs into each other. And, and this idea of a double inheritance plays itself out a couple times, going back to the symbolism that we see in the Book of Mormon. Nephi, you, you hear of Nephites, you hear of Jacobites, you hear of Josephites, Zoramites, even the servant who wasn't even part of the family, you hear of Zoramites, you hear of Lamanites, you hear of Lemuelites, but when have you ever heard of Samites? They don't show up at all. There's no. It's not even mentioned once in the Book of Mormon. What happened to Sam? Yeah, what happened to Sam? <laughs> what in the world happened to Sam? They, they said he followed Nephi. They said he was righteous. And Lehi blesses him at the end of his life and blesses that his posterity will be counted with Nephi's. And so it's almost as if Nephi is receiving a double portion. He's receiving two inheritances, his line and his brother's line, and this idea that he is receiving the birthright after his father uh, passes away. And you see this in the Israel, Joseph. When you look at the 12 tribes and their inheritance, um, you've got Naphtali and Gad and, and all of these different tribes that are inheriting, right? Joseph gets two portions in Israel, one for Ephraim and one from Manasseh. Everybody else gets one. He's getting the double portion. So, so you kind of see these, um, these double portions play out, and I think, that's what, I think that's what we're seeing here. Instead of taking it back to Seth, you, you have this Old Testament tradition where if you die— your brother raises up seed unto you, it counts for you, and then Seth and, and Abel is almost like the double portion. You have three sons, uh, Cain being wicked and being cast out, but then Abel receiving the double portion being inherited with Seth, the two-thirds. And, and also this idea of the two-thirds righteous, Christ being the firstborn, he inherits the two-thirds that come here to earth where Satan gets cast out. He's getting a single portion compared to Christ's double portion. Yeah. All awesome. right. Very very cool. Um that's Dude, uh, how cool would it be to be named Gad? Gad. Seems like a great name, doesn't it? I mean I mean maybe I need to have another kid just to name him Gad. What about Naphtali? N- I mean Naphtali's pretty dope too actually. You know what? You're right, dude. Naphtali's even doper than Gad. 
Maybe I could name him Naftali Gad. But not Dan. I mean, Dan's kind of like, Dan's Dan. a cool name, but it's just Dan. <laughs> it's not Naftali or Gad. There's some interesting names back then. There's some pretty great names back then. Well, and the weirdest thing about the names back then, I mean, for us, it's it's a step removed. We look at it, and it, it, it's a name to us, Dan or Joseph. It's a name. But to them, it literally meant something. Like uh, Daniel, God, God is my judge, mm. or judge of, um, judged of God, or, or um, all of these names. What about Gad? I can't think of what Gad is off the... What about Naftali? <laughs> I'm not sure what this is either off the top of my head. All right. Um, to me, they're just dope names. Elijah, whose name was Eliyahu, and, and it kind of gets shortened Whoa. to Elijah. Okay. El means God. Yep. Um, Eli means my God, and Jah means Jehovah. So my God is Jehovah. Oh, awesome. So if you're ever going to go talk to Elijah, I mean, to us, we just say Elijah, and it's a name. But but back then, you're saying, hey, how's it going? My God is Jehovah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we call people now Christian. Like Christian's a very common name. That That's true. Or faith, or hope, yeah, or charity. I'm just—it's funny because I sometimes think that the name Christian, we forget, in actually means you know what I mean—a follower of Christ. But it is—it is a funny—it is a funny thing that Christian, um, doesn't you know? Like I don't think we even think of it though when we call somebody Christian. Yeah, no, I I don't think it sinks in. I, I we've we've moved ourselves like it, it becomes a name, it becomes something else rather than it, it almost loses its its power, its symbolism somehow, which bums me out. It I'm does. A big, I'm a big I'm a big name guy. I'm Names a, are cool. I'm a big I'm a big believer in in uh, in naming, you know, attaching meaning to a name. Exactly, that's what I mean to say is attaching meaning to a name. And and hopefully doing our part to bring honor to names as well. I think it's, it's spot on. I'm a big name guy, man. I, I'm with you. I agree. I'm, I'm right there with you. Which is why I'm naming my next kid Gad. Yeah. <laughs> Probably need or, or Naptali. <laughs> there we go. What's his name? Naptali, you're right. Dude. The name Naptali would be cool other than if my kid was just freaking napping all the time. <laughs> he'd be like, what do you want me to do about it? You named me this. And I would say, you know what, Naptali? You're right, I did. <laughs> I guess that's what you get. All right. Why isn't my name Naptali? <laughs> all right, sorry. Hey, Nate, Nate does mean gift. Yeah, what is Nathaniel? Wasn't that some prophet that called? I think it was the, that came and told King David he needed to get right. Mm-hmm. Nathan uh, means gift okay. to give. Nathan is to give. Is that true? Uh huh. I am a gift man. And Nathaniel means gift of God, God's gift. What's up? <laughs> What's up? All right, never mind. I don't want Naptali. Thank you, parents, for reminding the world that I am God's gift. You know that's going to be in the introduction next week. Oh, yeah. It better be. <laughs> we might need to re-record the introduction this week. <laughs> All right, well, if, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna slide names aside for a minute, and well, I'm gonna whatever, come, man. I'm gonna come back to the priesthood. All right, sorry, sorry. No, that's me. I, I'm the only person like 100% derailing you on all of these things. But I don't know. They're cur- it's a curiosity, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you are. I think uh, I think everyone would be asleep if you didn't. All right, let's keep going. All right. So. While they're making a distinction about priesthood, he says, this priesthood continues forever. The Lord confirmed a a priesthood on Aaron also, which is a lesser priesthood. But he's going to start describing the differences between these. And this is where I think it's very powerful. He says, and the greater priesthood administered the gospel and holds the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. And, And the knowledge of God, to me, is not just, I know God lives, I have a testimony. And, and they're putting it in parallel. The, the, the key of the mysteries of the kingdom. What is the mystery of the kingdom? It says, even the key of the knowledge of God. And, and to show that it's not just a, a testimony, it's beyond that. In, in verse 20, it says, Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. So this, this idea of the power of godliness, knowing God. Verse 21, And without the ordinances thereof, and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. And then here's the key. For without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. So what does it mean to have a knowledge of God? Verse 23, for without this, no man can see the face of God and live. To know God, not just a testimony, but to see God. And, and where do you find that? In the ordinances thereof. And, and so what are the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood? I think I know. Go for it. Is it the temple work? That's, that's it. You look at the ordinances of the church. Baptism is Aaronic priesthood. Yes. Sacrament, Aaronic priesthood. Uh, a lot of the ordinances that we do outside of the temple or Aaronic priesthood ordinances. The bishop presides over the ward. The bishop presides over the Aaronic priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood are the ordinances that you see in the temple. And if you think about the Melchizedek priesthood ordinances, to be washed, to be anointed, to be endowed, and to know God or to come into the presence of God, that is the whole purpose of the Melchizedek priesthood. And, and so when you talk about a preparatory priesthood, because they say that the Aaronic priesthood is preparatory, I hear that all the time. But, but you almost want to ask, preparatory for what? Oh, for the Melchizedek priesthood. No, it's, it's beyond that. It's just not, it's, it's not preparatory for just another priesthood. What's the purpose of the Melchizedek then? The purpose of the Melchizedek is to take you into the presence of God. Therefore, the Aaronic priesthood is to prepare you to enter God's presence. And the Melchizedek priesthood is supposed to bring you into his presence. This, and so if I keep going, 23. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. What is his rest? It's, it's not just going to Zion. 
It's going into his presence. It's it's being with God. It's it's the temple. Therefore, he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. So because the children of Israel, who I know everybody always wants to have sympathy for, but I think they're the ultimate knuckleheads, um, because they were the ultimate knuckleheads, Moses originally came down off Mount Sinai, right? Mm-hmm. To basically say, here are here are the temple ordinances, the saving temple ordinances, and came down to find them being idiots. And God was basically like, no way. And so it's, and so if I'm understanding you correctly, I'm 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 trying to make sure that I'm understanding this right. Because I do remember in the scriptures, it was Moses's desire to have like all of the children of Israel see God. Yes. And now I think that I think I think I'm understanding you correctly. What that is probably very specifically saying was not even to necessarily just like with their eyeballs be like, oh, hey, here's God, but Moses was prepared to come down and give give authority to perform basically the temple ordinances to the children of Israel. But because of their knuckleheadness, he was just like, no way. Yeah. The the four chapters leading up to the golden calf experience, Moses coming down from the mountain, are four chapters of God revealing to Moses the structure for the temple. Crazy. And and then afterwards they go and they build the temple. It is all surrounded with temple instructions. The Lord was preparing his people to enter into his presence, to enter into his rest. But instead, now only the holy only the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Not Israel, but one person that represented Israel could go in once a year for them. Because they said to Moses, we don't want to. That's you right. represent us. You talk to God and you tell. And so now we get this pattern That's of, okay, right. the high priest will represent you. And instead of entering into my rest, I will pull that priesthood from you. I will pull those temple ordinances. You get you get a preparatory. Preparatory for what? Preparatory for entering into the presence of God. And, and this comes full circle. When Christ is sacrificed on the altar... And allowing us to return to the presence of God, what happens in the temple? The veil is rent. rent. Yeah. And, 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 and now that the atonement's been made, allowing people to enter into his presence again. Why do you think that, I mean, I have thoughts, but I, I'm sure you could probably articulate it better. Why, why did the children of Israel not want to have the responsibility of entering into the presence of God? You know, it's a good question. And 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 I think I think we have to remember the the situation that these people are coming from hundreds of years of, of servitude in Egypt where where they're not their own people. They're not taking care of themselves. They're not free. They're they're not they're not used to making decisions for themselves and wanting to do all of that. I think there's this 
a, a curve, a, a learning curve for them. They can't just go right into to Canaan. That whole generation has to die off in the wilderness before you get a new generation that, that has a changed mindset that, I, I don't know, those are just my thoughts off the top of my head, but that, that that's just that's just a guess. I I don't I don't actually know. I just sometimes wonder if that kind of sometimes parallels to us and the idea that there is a lot of responsibility that comes with um, making certain covenants, right? Yeah, there's a lot of personal responsibility that. Um, and just a higher way of living that we kind of commit to, right? We kind of touched it last week, right? The, the, the idea that where much is given, much yeah. is expected. I sometimes, I sometimes just wonder again, just to feed into my kind of general disdain for the children of Israel. Um, <laughs> I sometimes just have to laugh at the idea where they're just like, well, we kind of also just like doing whatever we want to do. I mean, we're stoked, you know, like, we're really glad God got us out of there. So, hey, can you go and be the righteous one so that we can kind of do whatever we want? But, hey, you go be really righteous so that we can, um, you know, we can do our thing but still have somebody putting in a good word for us. Uh, and that might, that's that's probably me just being grumpy at these knuckleheads. Well, you look at you look at religion in general over, over the years— this idea that don't worry about your salvation, that's what you pay us for, we yes. will take care of you, we will make sure that you get saved, and, and kind of match that mindset with somebody right off the bat in the beginning. Don't don't worry. I don't want a single person to be lost. I will make sure that you don't get lost. Put the burden on me, yes. and I will make sure everyone gets saved. You don't need to worry about your salvation. I'll take care of it, versus, no, now all of a sudden, we all need to own. We yeah. have our agency. What are we going to do? What decisions are you going to make? Like, what? How are you going to actually live your life? And 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 the idea that we today have a temple and ordinances that allow us to go back into the presence of God to 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 walk back into His home to Eden to paradise, if you will, to to where God was in the cool of the day with His people. How often? Are we taking advantage of that and seeking God? Do we seek his face? Do we go to the temple expecting to see him, hoping that as we part the veil that we will be in his presence? Are we constantly going back and seeking that when when we have it? Or are we satisfied to, to, to let someone else take care of that for us? Well, imagine the responsibility that we already have by just the testimonies that we have, wherever those are on the, the journey, right? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the responsibility that you would have if you did see God? You know what I mean? Like that, it, I I can, it, it maybe, maybe this is a better way to say it. Maybe in this one instance, I think I actually do kind of maybe understand and actually maybe sympathize a little bit with the knuckleheads. And that is, yeah, it is, that is kind of a scary prospect, What the question that you just asked. And maybe like, dude, when I go to the temple, I am absolutely not looking to see God. And then I'm like, crap, that's exactly what the children of Israel said. <laughs> you know maybe, what I mean? Maybe there's more Israel in us than I know, that's thought. what I'm saying. Like, dang it. Maybe I'm one of these knuckleheads. <laughs> but it's interesting. You ask that question, and my response is, is like, 
no, no way. I'll let the prophet do that for me. And then I'm like, uh-oh. Oh, no, I've heard this before. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that. And, and and we get to this oath and covenant. If I, if I turn the page, it says uh, 33, For whoso is faithful unto obtaining these two priesthoods, of which I have spoken, and the magnifying their calling, and sanctifying by the Spirit and the renewing of their bodies, they become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church of the kingdom and the elect of God. And also... All they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord, for he that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth my Father, and he that receiveth my Father receiveth my Father's kingdom. Therefore, all that my Father hath shall be given unto him. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. The whole priesthood is, is really about bringing people to God. That's the whole purpose of it. The Aaronic priesthood is preparing you to enter God's presence. The Melchizedek priesthood is to take you into God's presence. And if you receive these servants, they're authorized to represent God, to make promises on his behalf, to bring you into his presence. That is it. That is the whole purpose, the whole oath and covenant. Everything about the priesthood is to bring you to God. That's it. Uh, amazingly simple, yet powerful. I I love also, too, that both men and women officiate in the Melchizedek priesthood ordinances in the temple. Uh, not only do they officiate, but correct me if I'm wrong, are you not ordained to be priests and priestesses? I love it. I just, I know that, I know that that is also and can be a sensitive topic and something that maybe someday we can get into a little bit more because I think that usually it's a sensitive topic because there's not a lot of explanation or understanding what you just said, which is the priesthood is for really, truly one thing, and that is to prepare for people to see God and be brought into his presence and then actually to bring people into the presence of God all done, all done and officiated by both men and women being ordained to be priests and priestesses. And and regardless, or irregardless, I should say, of who's actually officiating, the priesthood benefits all. Whether it's a male or female or whatever the case may be, it is all people that receive the blessings of the priesthood, not just for males to enter into the presence of God, all of God's children. The priesthood is here on earth not to bless some people because of their race or some people because of their sex. It is to bless all people, irregardless of who's officiating or providing that service. It is for all people to come unto God. Love it. All right. There's um, there's something fascinating here. Uh, I'm telling you this section. I love this section. Um, but as we as we move forward a little bit, um, let's maybe go to verse 43. And now I give unto you a commandment to beware concerning yourselves, to give diligent heed to the words of eternal life. For you shall live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. For the word of the Lord is truth. And whatsoever is truth is light. And whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And, and, the, the talk about spirit and light 
and truth and, and these concepts that I don't know that I fully understand. I don't know that anyone fully understands. And, and, you, and you talk about light. What is, what is light? And I think even science has a hard time comprehending what light is. For, for a long time, you get to this, is it a wave or is it a particle? Because it has this, this wave-particle duality. And, and it does some weird things. And, and you get to this, um, and if you don't mind me just bouncing down the science road a little ways. Let's do it. I'm ready. <laughs> the dual slit experiment. If you ever want a mind-blowing experience, look up the dual slit experience, the experiment. And, and this idea that you have these two slits, and if, you, if you're sending light through it, if, if it's a wave that goes through the two slits, then, then it's going to create a new wave on each slit. And, and each new wave is going to have an interference pattern where the waves, the crest, um, let's see, the peaks and the valleys, the peaks are going to hit another peak and it's going to be twice as high. But when a peak hits a valley, it's going to cancel out and be low. So you get this interference pattern on this back wall from the waves coming through these two slits. And so it'll be a series of bars or lines all across the wall. I, I, maybe it's hard to visualize this as I'm trying to explain it through a podcast when really you just need to see it. But if you were to shoot particles rather than waves through these two openings, then you're only going to get two lines on the back wall because that's the only way these particles can pass through here is on this, uh, on this wall. So when they're trying to understand the nature of light... They, they, they try to, to see what's going on. They, they start sending them through, um, through these two slits, and you get this interference pattern. And they say, okay, so light's a wave. And they say, okay, but let's slow it down and send it through at one photon at a time. And if you're sending it through one photon, then the photon can either go through one slit or the other, but it can't interfere with itself, right? There's nothing that it can do. So they do this, and... And they still get the wave interference pattern on the back wall. And like, how is that happening? Is, is it going through both slits at the same time and interfering with itself? How can a particle be splitting itself up? This doesn't make sense. So they said, we need to, we need to monitor this and see what's actually happening. So, so they put a detector on one of the slits. So if a photon goes through it, they'll be able to positively identify the photon went through this slit. We got it. So now... We know that it went through this one, and then we can hopefully see if it went through both or what, what behavior is doing. So they set the experiment up, ran it again, and now all of a sudden, instead of an interference pattern on the back wall, they have two lines match perfectly on the back wall. And, 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 and you can measure every time it goes through one or the other, and it's behaving exactly like a particle. It's not behaving like a, a, a wave anymore. The simple act of observing it changed its behavior. <laughs> That is mind-blowing. And you're like, why? How? If I watch it, then, then I know that then, then it behaves one way. If I'm not watching, it behaves another way. And this uncertainty, certainty, and, and, and it, gets, it gets weird. It, it gets a lot weirder than this. Now, I've actually I've looked at this stuff before, I've, and I've, uh, I've gone down like the quantum physics rabbit hole, believe it or not. For as terrible as I am at math, <laughs> I, I, do love, I do love that certain things can either exist or non-exist whether or not you observe them or not. Yes. It's so bizarre to me. And, and so it gets back to this question of what is light? 
And, and something so basic, so essential to life that we discovered thousands of years ago in the sun, and it needs light for photosynthesis and plants, yet something so simple can be so complex and so mysterious. I don't know. I, I love... I, I love these. Uh, Christ is light, and what does that mean? What what does it mean to be light? And and truth is light, and and fascinating to me is the idea that I cannot see anything around me. I I can't see the microphone or the the door, the wall, the carpet, the rug. All I can see is whatever light reflects off those objects, and 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 hits those sensors, those rods and cones in my eyes and creates electrical signals to what I think I'm seeing in the world around me is actually an image created inside of my head, allowing me to understand what's around me based solely on the light that reaches my eyes. Mm. That light is what illuminates us. It's not It's not the table. It's the light reflecting off of it. That all truth is this, this light, this this analogy of Christ and God that through him you might know all things through him you can understand the truth of all things that he is light and everything we know about the stars we, we can't look at them up close it, it all has to do with the light that's traveling and how it travels and the and the red shift or the blue shift or 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 when we look at what chemical properties it makes up we dissect the light and see what what we study the light to understand everything in the world around us. It's it's amazing to me. And of course, like all of the kind of the ideas that light can always push away darkness, but darkness can never consume light. Yes, because darkness is really just the absence, absence of, of light. light. When and it's it is kind of a you know it's it's a it's a nice. Uh, it's a nice Instagram quote. Because, you know, I used to think about this as a kid. I, I used to wonder, I used to, you know, I don't know, I was a weird kid. But I would think if, if God, if there's an opposite in all things and there's a God that's all powerful, then then I would think and wonder, is is there like the opposite of God that, that that's super powerful on the opposite side of the spectrum? And, and, and who tempted Satan to fall in the first place? Is there this other being that he's... And then I come to the realize, as I was wondering about these things, it's not so much that there's an opposite in there's something equal or greater over here as much as there is and there isn't. God is light. God exists. God is knowledge. And there's lack of knowledge. There's mm. darkness. There's an absence. There's a void. It's it's an opposite in being versus not being. It's awesome. I mean, it's some. That is some profound insight. Well, I I, I love this, and in verse forty six, and the Spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit, and everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. And again, we see this coming to God. And this light is what's illuminating us and drawing us and bringing us to God. And the light should be taking us to the point where we get this priesthood will allow us to to allow to, to enter into his presence. That everything is about returning to God. Even letting our light so shine isn't necessarily even anything that we are necessarily doing other than hopefully letting our, you know, testimony 
of Jesus or whatever that is, but it is interesting that when even when you reread those scriptures of let your light so shine, understanding when Jesus says, I am the light and I am I am those things, and then it kind of puts a, a better twist on it too. It's like, okay, if that light is supposed to be illuminating our way back to God, then what is what does that commandment then mean to let your light so shine? Like, what perspective shift can can you take away from that? It's just like, oh, we need to be doing our part to be good examples. We need to be doing our part to very specifically be, you know, hoping hoping that we can, you know, harvest souls back to, you know, God. Yeah, like you say, no no man lights a candle and puts a bucket over it. I, yeah. I, I butcher but I, that in modern terms. No, but I think I think I, I guess I'm just saying it's like very specifically what you just said is if light is to is is to illuminate your way back to God, then letting our light so shine should be should be a very specific, deliberate purpose, not just us going, hey, I believe in Jesus, but hey, what are you actively doing to bring others unto Jesus? Like, what are you, what are you actively doing to, to help other people have their paths illuminated back to, as to well? To illuminate the world around people, yep. to, to almost be that that lighthouse that, that shows the rocks or, or points at... Or more important, the lower lights. Mm-hmm. Because the lighthouse, Jesus does a great job of being the lighthouse, and what what we're commanded to do is we don't have to have that powerful of a beam on our own. We are we are all of the feeble lamps to combine together. Uh, that's such a great song too. Well, going into this idea of light and darkness, it builds on this, and 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 now we're going to kind of get the opposite. Verse 53, and by this you may know the righteous from the wicked, that the whole world groaneth under sin and darkness, even now. And your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things which you have received, which vanity and unbelief has caused the whole church, hath brought the whole church unto condemnation, and this condemnation resteth upon all, or excuse me, upon the children of Zion, even all. And and look how they use darkness in here. So before this idea of light, and he enlightens man, and he gives more light to man, but because you've treated lightly the things which I have given you, now there's darkness. You're losing that light. And and the world groaneth under sin, and, and you have been darkened your minds have been darkened you're losing that light how are we losing that light what what are we doing that says vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church in condemnation it says because you have treated lightly the things which you have received thoughts on that nate i just think that it's funny that light and lightly you know what i mean like it's a bummer <laughs> yes. that like one of them such a great thing and this one is like you it's fun. it's just funny that it's I I just can't get over that it's the same root word, but yeah. <laughs> it is interesting that the idea of light not having any bearing to it, they're not having a lot yeah. of weight. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny. I don't know. I don't have any other thoughts than that. Um, I don't got I I got nothing. 
so what are the things that we treat lightly? And and I think we can look at that in our lives and say, okay, what are we treating lightly? I mean, just a second ago, we were talking about the temple, this idea that we can actually enter into the presence of God. Are, are we treating that lightly? Do we take that serious? Now, but it's more than that, because they're talking about he who receiveth my servants receiveth me, and the words of my servants receiveth me, and this path that by listening to the servants, you are directed to Christ, who directs you to the Father, this this path, this oath and the covenant. And it tells us in verse 57, and they shall remain under condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon. So you're going to be under condemnation, under darkness, you're not going to have the light you need until you remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments. So if the new covenant is the Book of Mormon, then former commandments in my mind would be the Old Testament, the New Testament, that really he who receiveth my servants receiveth me is reference to the Scriptures. Are we diving into the scriptures? Are we trying to read these? Are we receiving Christ through studying the scriptures? And it says, even the former commandments which I have given them, not only to say, but to do according to that which I have written. Not just talk about it. Anybody can talk about it. Anybody can quote a verse. But are we internalizing these and acting on them? And how can we act and internalize them if they're not part of our our regular examination? Are we looking? Are we studying? And that's what's keeping us in darkness. And we will remain in darkness until we turn to them. They will give us the light that we need. And from that light, we will receive more and more and more light because it will take us to Christ. He who receiveth my servants receiveth me. He who receiveth me receiveth my Father. All right. Last thing. I, I mean, there's there's so much more we could talk about, and I'm, I'm, I feel like I've already talked too long, so I'm going to try to wrap this up with maybe one more thing that I thought was really cool. Um, the Lord talks, or they say that they're going to sing a new song. Uh, verse 98, Until all shall know me who remain, even from the least unto the greatest, and shall be filled with the knowledge of, uh, of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice, with the voice together and sing a new song. So you're all about singing, Nate. This is this is right up your alley. I am <laughs> The words are a little different. It says, saying, The Lord hath brought again Zion. He hath redeemed the people of Israel according to the election of his grace. I'm going to fast forward to the part that I found is super interesting. Um, Satan is bound. Time is no longer. The Lord hath gathered all things in one. He hath brought down Zion from above. Um, 101. The earth hath travailed and brought forth her strength, and truth is established in her bowels. The earth hath travailed and brought forth her strength. Truth is established in her bowels. What is what is the earth giving birth to? Truth. So how is the earth giving birth to truth? As we're talking about this travail. And, and this is what I think is so amazing. 
the Book of Mormon comes from the earth, the idea of these prophets speaking as if it was from the dust of the ground, right? And and Joseph Smith unearths this Book of Mormon in this time of restoration, and the Lord opens up a dispensation and reveals truth upon the earth, but it is born from the earth. And, and for years and years, I mean, you go to the Book of Mormon and you read about how they were burying their treasures in the ground and they couldn't find them anymore. The earth was hiding them up. They couldn't discover them anymore. And all of these treasures, people digging all over and trying to find it, how rare is it that you find these archaeological treasures? But now here, all of a sudden, Joseph Smith unearths this great truth. But it's not just the Book of Mormon because the whole earth is telling us these things that is just shaking everything of what we believe. Um, The first dinosaur bone is credited to being discovered in the 1600s, and and the guy thought it was a bone from a giant, a massive human. It's It's not associated correctly to a dinosaur until the 1800s. And paleontology starts to exist in the 1800s, the mid to late 1800s, as people start looking at the earth and seeing these different strata, they start challenging the traditional belief of how old the earth is and saying, this is a lot older than we thought. And the earth is telling us stories that we didn't even realize existed. Um, Archaeology, paleontology, all of these are exploding. Charles Darwin takes his voyage in, in the 1800s, the same time that Joseph Smith is restoring the church, all of these different things, understanding the earth is starting to be unearthed. The earth is travelling and delivering all of these facts from before, these, these, these strata, these layers, this history. And, and the history challenges the, the belief at the time. And, and what greater symbol of challenging so hard what everyone believed about how old the earth is, about the history of the earth, about everything we thought we knew. Not only did the earth change, and that now all of a sudden they're thinking that the earth is millions of years old. Now all of a sudden they're looking at it and seeing all of these different histories and all of these different things that are just challenging everything of what they thought the earth was. But at the same time, the new heavens are being born. At the time, they thought that the earth was the center, that the sun revolved around the earth, that the earth was God's creation and everything revolved around God's creation to now all of a sudden countless stars out there and we're just a little speck in, in almost nothing. A new heaven and a new earth is is being poured out all over the place at the same time that the gospel is being restored. And, and to me, it's almost this sign that just as, just as the Lord is challenging everyone's beliefs on what the history of the earth was, the, the Lord was unearthing a very simple gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith that would challenge everyone's religious beliefs about what they thought God was. Now, all of a sudden, God, as, as, as God is man may become as God once was, man, um, as man is now, God once was. That God became man so that man could become God. This whole theology changes and, and is, it's so disruptive. And, and all of this spewing forth from the earth the same century. I don't know. To, to me, it's fascinating. Maybe I'm 
Maybe I'm just That's seeing dope. this. That's maybe, awesome. Maybe I'm seeing this all funny or weird, but I I don't think it's just a coincidence that that, that paleontology that, that all of this change happens at the same time that the earth is unearthing all of these truths and and shocking people, shocking the world, shocking what we believe and making us challenge our assumptions and realize we can't just rest on what everyone else has been saying. We need to find out for ourselves. We need to know God. We need to find that light that will bring us to him and find his priesthood to return back to his presence again. It's awesome, man. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, what are we talking about next week? Next week is, uh, I know it starts in Dr. Covenant's 85, but I haven't looked. Uh, <laughs> we don't know where it's going after 85. I'm All right. not sure where we're going from there. All right. Well, uh, then I guess it'll be a surprise for next week. All right. All right. Until next week. See ya. See ya.